A random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter, what are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome everyone to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. Oh, Eddie's not here. Eddie's, he's on uh, assignment in, uh, let's see. He's on assignment in Guam, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guests, I want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias. First off, go on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at The Marvelists. You can find us individually. I'm at Peter Melnick on pretty much everything except TikTok, which is at Peter Melnick, but better, not but butter. <laughs> Jeremy. You can also find us on a wide variety of listening platforms. Oh, actually, you can find Eddie on Instagram at Eddie9193. I think I got that right. John, throw in there that I'm an idiot if I got it wrong, because, well... I'm an idiot who might have gotten it wrong. You can also find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash themarvelist. Support the show for as little as $3 a month to as high as $8 or more. So the sky's really the limit. If you want to pay $1,000 a month, we're not really complaining. But you can get a wide variety of listening options on there, including early access and our premium show, Fantastic Voyage, where we cover all 102 issues of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's iconic run of the Fantastic Four. So now, before we get into the, you know, before we get into the topic at hand, let's introduce our special guests. On the other end of the tin cannon string, we are joined with Matthew Spradlin. We are joined with Sean E. Demott. They are the co-creators of Hot Valley Days and Cocaine Nights from Antarctic Press. Gentlemen, good evening. Good to be here, Peter. <laughs> so first off, the book. I'm getting straight-up vibes of, like, 1970s, 1980s stories such as Boogie Nights, American Hustle, and things like that. And I'm loving it right off the bat with that general vibe for myself. What? Right? You're, the, you're our guy. Thank you. <laughs> sure. That's exactly, you know, that's what we want, how we want it to come across. Uh, it, when Sean and I were talking about it, it really was... You know, what is the vibe and what is the tone and how, uh, you know, authentic are we going to have this and how gritty are we going to have this? And if we're going to speak, you know, from a place of truth, let's really tell it like it was in the 80s in L.A. during the hair metal and, uh, you know, the party scene. And it's very intense, like right off the bat within like the first few pages. You're dealing with the character Janie, who is just in a rough situation in her life and yeah, just so very rough. Yeah. She was, uh, you know, she, she is a tough, a tough lady and she's also a very nice lady. She's got a very, uh, uh, what do I say? Kind of a straightforward, uh, look at life, very black and white, very right and wrong. And even though she's, you know, in the middle of all this, uh, at that time, barely, barely 20 when she actually starts dealing, uh, she still, you know, didn't, 
she worked hard at what she did, and she still kind of didn't. She didn't like to be wronged, even though you know she's dealing drugs. It was well, I give you the drugs, you give me the money, and that's the way it should always be. Right. So uh, you know, in in L.A., you know, at, especially at that time. Everybody was just a lunatic. <laughs> when you're dealing with everybody in the music business and in the film business and entertainment business in general, you just you have to deal with everybody with a very firm hand. There's just something about this story, and like like I said, you know, right off the bat, I get those vibes of those kind of movies, those kinds of stories. And when I look at the cover, when I look at the art on the inside, it gives me. The, like, I can hear a soundtrack for this. And music is one of the most important parts of stories such as this, like the 1980s, the, the vibe in general. What would be your ideal soundtrack for this story? Well, Sean, I'll let you take that. Sean. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so, you know, a lot of people have said to us, I, you know, the, the natural thing for people to say is, oh, you you know, this would be a movie, and, you know, you're going to have to license Welcome to the Jungle, and, and we're like, eh, I mean, those are those are great ideas and great songs, but, like, for us, like, you know, we were around in the 80s, you know, in the Valley, <laughs> in Hollywood, and it was like, we would really want known and maybe some unknown uh, demos running in the background. Like, we really wanted to feel like this, super hungry culture of, you know, this sea of like musicians with giant hair that were trying to make it. And it was so competitive. So, I mean, we, you know, I, we always think uh, can you deliver by armored saint would be like the theme song just because of, uh, the message, you know, literally can you deliver? Um, and this was also like, I don't know. It was, it was, it was right on the time. It felt very like kind of metal in the suburbs and, uh, uh, God, you there was, with the, go ahead, man. I was just going to say, there were so many metal bands jockeying for position during the 80s, especially starting, you know, like around 1985 up until the end of 80s. Like, there's so many crazy 80s bands that you haven't heard of, especially in that scene. And um, I remember when, uh, when Sean and I were first talking about this, I just offhandedly mentioned a band that was playing at that time called Legs Up. And Sean, Sean turned to me and said, yeah, I know those guys. <laughs> and we both laughed at each other. We're like, we have to have a Legs Up song in this thing. <laughs> we have to have yeah. some of those songs. I, I, you know, I think we'd want to we'd go somewhere between, as, you know, as mainstream as maybe Running With The Devil by Van Halen, but like a lot of these obscure bands that were on Atlantic and... and Again, like mixed with demo tapes from bands trying to make it, a lot of them that didn't make it from that time. Like, I think if, if he and I were like getting super pure with the truth of, of really trying to tell it verbatim, we'd probably go maybe even a little obscure, more obscure than maybe people would want us to. But um, yeah, I mean, I think we would go Wasp and black and blue and a lot of these like rough cut and a lot of these valley metal bands that um had record deals but never really achieved the success of the poisons and the uh, uh yeah. you know this this is pre-poison it's pre guns and roses it's that 
Uh, it's somewhere between the Rat and Motley Crue era, but a few years later, and there was just a, there was just a lot of bands floating around. And I don't know, uh, Matt and I are able to uh, articulately <laughs> remember a lot of that stuff. And um, I don't know if I've totally answered your question. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's interesting because the be- one of the best '80s soundtracks for a TV show, right? And they used a lot of obscure alternative music. Did you ever see Halt and Catch Fire? No. On AMC? No, I have not. Oh, okay. So, like, they use a lot of 80s bands that were in the alternative scene, but then they use a lot of alternative music from the 80s, dance music that you hadn't heard, that was not super popular. And it really, like, peppered that show so well. Myself. Uh, so we would be doing the metal version of that. <laughs> when, I, when I'm looking at, you know, the book, though, I know it's supposed to be with the metal stuff, but... For some reason, when I think of the 1980s, you know, especially like the drug scene and stuff like that, I feel like synthwave would also play a very major part oh, yeah. in the story. Yes. 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 So for sure. Y- yeah. And I'm glad you said that because <clears throat> we would want to go, you know, with all you, you remember the, the artist Nagel and the, there was always these like Nagel knockoffs at the swap meet in the valley. <laughs> and so, yeah, we would absolutely go synthwave. For sure. Like, I think you yeah. would go, you know, if this was a show, you would have a scene where someone's driving a Fiero, and if it's, you know, a heavy metal person, then maybe there's some black and blue coming out of the stereo, but maybe maybe someone pulls up, maybe a cool valley girl pulls up in an IROC at a red light next to this person, and Yaz or Soft Cell or... or right, you know, or they go visit, you know... Right, or they go they go visit their version of you know Eddie Nash, right? Who is represented in in Boogie Nights, right? By Alfred Molina. Right. That's really supposed to be Eddie Nash. So if you've got their version of Eddie Nash going to see going to, at his house, he's definitely going to be playing some synthwave. <laughs> <laughs> Again, there's just something about that vibe, that era. Like you know, growing up myself, I'm 32 years old, and like. I was, you know, 13 years old playing Grand Theft Auto Vice City, and, you know, the whole 1980s atmosphere is so intoxicating in a way, you know? It's very, very much something that's, like, it's like a forbidden kind of thing, you know, but it's also, it's got that coolness to it, you know? It was the height of partying. Like, that was as excessive and as absolutely living in a bubble of partying as may ever be in... American history. I've always said uh, if cocaine had a sound, it would be uh, Debbie Harry circa the uh, early to mid-1980s. Yes. Totally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if cocaine had a sound, that's perfect. And it, it's just very much like, you know, every time I hear uh, Heart of Glass, for example, by Blondie, that, that is the song. It's just very much, oh, that that is what it probably sounds like. If it made yeah. like, you yeah. know, throw it at a wall, like you just hear, you know, all of a sudden Debbie Harry for no reason. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. But with- and it's fun- it's funny. There really there really was, especially <clears throat> at that time, all these guys in the metal bands. They didn't have any money, right? Like they're all they're you know living in like there's like six guys in one apartment. You know, guys in Guns N' Roses lived over in the Hell House, you know, which is just a dump. But then after they would play a show, the after party was always at some guy's house, uh, maybe a rich foreign guy. Uh, or just some dude 
that had more money than he knew what to do with, and he loved to hang out with all those bands. And so the parties and all the girls and all the band guys would go over to that person's house up in the hills or in Beverly Hills or Hollywood Hills, and that's where, like, these crazy parties would happen. Right. Now, with the story of Hot Valley Days and Cocaine Nights, you can be able to get this book online on Comixology, but, like, I tried buying myself a physical copy of this book, and it's kind of hard to do now because, like, I was looking at the prices, like the uh, resale value on eBay, and I'm kind of kicking myself that I did not discover this book sooner because looking at the cover price or the, the price is now of, like, 20 to $40 to even 200 on eBay. Kind of annoyed I missed out on this. We're kicking ourselves for not printing more. <laughs> it, it, like, honestly, we had no idea the sale yeah. was going to be this good. Like, we... It, it, we're pleasantly surprised and could not have planned for it. Like it's, <clears throat> they're gone, and we're. Yeah. It's funny. Our uh, Antarctic emailed us the other day, and they were like, "Hey, we don't, we don't have any at the office. Like, there's not even one copy here. Can one of you guys send me over <laughs> a couple of yours?" And we were like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I packed up. I had like, I had like three copies of the regular and maybe one of the issue one variant and one of the issue two variant. That was all I had. That was it. Is this series going to be seeing a second print? Mm. We're talking about that right now. What we, what we want to do is we want to do something really cool and special for the trade. So we're, we may do a very something different for the trade and do something kind of high end, do something that's really just really neat and maybe add some extra. There's so many stories and it was, that was the most difficult thing with this was whittling it down to three issues, you know? So we had all these stories, all these different things from uh, talking with Janie. And so it was, well, what if we threw in like another story segment in for the trade along with all three issues? Right. We're kind of, we're sort of focusing on that, and then we are kind of doing a wait and see, and then we might we might do another run of the single issues. We're not sure, though. And, you know, one of the things also, again, I feel like part of why this is such a hard book to find is because it's really good. And, you know, the dialogue, the way the characters speak, the way everything feels, it's so natural. And... It's very hard to see that in certain comics out there because it'll have like stilted dialogue or this or that. But this all has a very natural flow, very dialogue. Like, you know what I mean? How like the dialogue feels real. You never really get to see that sometimes in comics where this kind of story is going on. It, you know, they'll feel very stilted. But this feels like a movie, like really, really feels like a movie. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, we, uh, Sean and I, we... We wanted it to feel authentic, and uh, you know, I know I've said this more than one time, but we we wanted it to be a story that was uh, from the '80s and right. not about the '80s. In the same sense, when you see Star Wars, like the original, like when Star Wars first hit the theater, it was like, oh my gosh, here's a movie from outer space and not about outer space, and that was sort of going into this and we have a lot of conversations because you know the way that people spoke in the 80s is obviously weren't weren't 
it's not very PC (laughs) because people just didn't know. They just didn't know. There was not a lot of self-awareness. There wasn't a lot of awareness about a lot of things that were going on because you, you really, you know, the whole idea of you just got locked in your own little bubble, right? And when you're out in L.A. doing all that stuff, you're hanging out with just people in L.A. You're not connecting with anybody else. That's it. That's your world. So we wanted it to feel authentic, and we know it's a little gritty, it's a little grimy here and there, but that's we just wanted to stick to our guns on that. It's Yeah, and it's the reality of the situation of what these characters are dealing with and encountering. And again, it feels natural, and that's very hard to say. You know, compared to like a lot of other stories out there, this feels real. This feels like, you know, right off the bat, based on a true story, I I would imagine, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I'll let uh, I'll let Sean speak to that a little bit more. What yeah, I mean, I was deep in it, uh, <clears throat> you know, and to kind of pick up what, what Matthew was saying, it's just like. We, the authenticity was so important because we were like, okay, some of this is really gritty and, you know, uh, offensive. <laughs> but, like, we were like, do we want to tell a fairy tale or do you want to be honest? You yeah. know, and uh, I was around that scene since I was right out of high school. You know, I was in, in and out of those parties and those clubs at 18, and it's, you know that was the, the reality of 80s culture in Hollywood and in the Valley, you know? So we, we really, um, you know, as we were doing the interviews and getting all the, all the story rights and getting everything together, um, the dialogue was super important. We, we really wanted to hold our own on, we wanted to hold our ground on like, okay, we're going to tell it, like what was told to us and we're going to be authentic, you know? So, um, but that's, that's what was going on. You know, I was, I was, and we also want, we also wanted to give it a nice counterbalance because this isn't a shoot 'em up story, right? Nobody's like, there are like guys busting into a place, shooting a bunch of guys with guns. And because it's not as violent as some of those stories, we were like, well, then I, feel like we can balance, we can give a little bit more of that grittiness with the way that they speak. Now, you know, like I've said repeatedly throughout this, it has a very movie feel to it. And if you guys had the ability to do so, first off, would you make this into a movie? And if so, who would you cast in the different roles? (laughs) Um, We talk about this a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great talent out there that potentially work. I mean, in my mind, I always picture, like, Machine Gun Kelly to me as uh, the brother because I think he literally looks almost identical yeah. to the guy. Uh, you know, two two tall guys from Ohio. I mean, what are the odds of, of that? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and, you know, I think Karen Gillan would be a pretty great uh, lead. I think, uh, uh, you know, if you were aiming for the moon, you know, I mean, Karen Gillan is aiming for the moon, I think, a bit. Uh, Emma Emma Stone, I think, is, uh, you know, would, could really pull that off. Uh, Matthew has some 
different yeah. things he throws I, around. I love times. I love Maya Hawk. I have a I have a, a crush on Maya Hawk, and I think that she's just an awesome actress. On top of all that, so she would be my pick to play Jamie. And in regards to the story, where did the decision come about to make it into a comic, and how did all of that come around? So, um, I had met um, these characters from the comic book uh, in real life when I was uh, 18, 19 uh, in the Valley. And um, I remember seeing a lot of the parties and the, uh, you know, the Ferraris in the driveways and the, the, you know, the drugs and the big hair and all the craziness at the parties. And I, I remember, like, <clears throat> being a teenager, like, seeing a lot of people come and go in that scene. And I met most of those people in, in the book. And I had stepped away from that crowd. Um, you know, I didn't know much about the world, but I knew when, you know, something was going to, not work out or when the, I knew when something was going to go sideways, I had a, a, a gut meter, a, you know, a gut instinct meter, so to speak. And I had stepped away and I'd heard all these rumors. Oh, this person uh, got 18 years and this person got 10 years and this person got, and I remember hearing that kind of through the grapevine after I'd stepped away and I was like, man, that's really serious. Like, 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 uh, and then I had heard that she had gotten away and some good karma and universal good voodoo or whatever you want to call it um, prevented her. She wanted to get out and she was able to get out and was pursued but didn't have enough proof and uh, was blessed to get away from it and changed her her life, you know. And so years later I had reconnected with her and was like, um, I knew she had a good heart and I knew she was a really good person from the first time I had met her. I was like, this is a, like a good person. And so I'd stayed in touch and became, you know, friends. And, um, years later I was like, that story is so good and so legit. Um, I want to get the rights. It's, I want to tell the story in some way or another, you know, so I had gotten the rights to the story and, um, had some mutual friends in the industry and we had some friends in the VFX business that we both knew. And, and, and um, it was kind of weird how it happened, but like I had, uh, met Matthew through a mutual friend at a, uh, pretty big studio in Hollywood. And we were talking, but I was really talking to Matthew about a whole other project. Um, supernatural project and you know it was a cool hang but it didn't really click on that project and then uh this is a true story i was after the meeting i was going to an elevator uh to leave and matthew was uh standing by me and i literally hit the elevator button and i was like what what do you like dude like what's your what do you happen to like you know and he was like i like true stuff that's true like things that really happen I was like, okay, I got, I got an idea. <laughs> and I just shotgun blasted a, a pitch in like 30 seconds. You know, this girl runs away from Ohio and uh, she, you know, meets her brother and they get an apartment and there's this guy in the building and he has a big brick of 
Peruvian flake. True story, and it was in a box, and she found it. And I, I just threw the story out there quickly, and Matthew was like, "Man, is that real?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He was like, "That's great." <laughs> I was like, "It's a real thing." He's like, "I love it," you know. And and Matthew, I'll let you. And I wasn't sure what what where to go with it. And Matthew, I'll let you. I'll let you jump in from here. Uh, yeah, it was. I was like, okay, this is cool. Let's, you know, let's kind of plan this out. And so we started, when we started working on, you know, on planning how we're going to tell the story, um, there's a couple of older films that I'm a big fan of. Uh, they're both by Bob Fosse. One of them is Star 80 and the other is Lenny. And both of those movies, whenever you've seen and, um, you know, Peter, I'm sure, like, whenever you see a biography movie, you you know all they hit all the same beats, right? Yeah. The person does this on this at this point, and then they do this at this point, and then this happens to them, and they go through this trial at this point, and it's just like A, B, C, D, E. And it's kind of boring. So what I wanted to do was do it where, okay, we're going to start with her trying to get out of the business, and we're going to flash back to what led her to immediately leaving Ohio. And then we're going to kind of close up the gap as the issues go forward. And so that way, at the very least, you know, before we even start on writing a scene or dialogue or any of that, we just know that that, that kind of structure at least will, that's kind of interesting. So we're, we're, I'm just doing everything that we can to keep the story interesting, wham, 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 for all three issues, throughout the whole three issues. So there's no filler, you know, there's no lag time. And then once we, once we had the script down and the story down, then we went about finding uh, an artist and Antarctic, the people at Antarctic Press said, well, there's this guy, but he's never done a full book. And I was like, what? Okay. And so I saw his artwork and I was like, I couldn't believe it. They're like, yeah, he's getting a lot of attention from Top Cow but he hasn't done a full book yet. So I reached out to him and told him how much I liked his artwork. And we, we actually started down the road with two artists, two penciler and inkers. But the first original guy, he was having some problems and we had to let him go and no hard feelings. I'll probably use him again down the road. But uh, then Farid had to kind of pick up the slack on it. And he just like came in like a superstar and penciled and inked. And, you know, we didn't note him to death too much. We gave him a lot of leeway, you know, just a little bit of direction on where things should land on the page to make it a little easier to follow. And other than that, like he was just like turning in those pages and we were loving it. And then uh, Andrew Crossley, uh, I reached out to him. And he just handled the colors like a champ. And once, you know, the only other, the only other thing we had to do with Farid was <laughs> we had to give him a lot of reference. He's in Turkey. So he, and he's younger. So it wasn't, he's, he doesn't know anything about LA or the eighties. So there was a lot of reference photos. It was a lot of that given to him, but he, he, he made it sing. And, you know, what you mentioned, uh, Sean had mentioned, is the elevator pitch for this story. And, you know, as a creative type myself, the elevator pitch is one of the most daunting things. But 
if it's done right, it's so rewarding, you know, and as you know, evidence with all of this, it pays off. Both of yeah. you as creative types, what is your biggest advice for the most, for a successful elevator pitch? Um, my advice is you, I believe that if you take some, if you find a story that hasn't been told, but you can relate this story, which hasn't been told with a really good hook, right? If you can relate that quickly in a couple, two, three sentences to somebody and you know, like you have to, like there really is a thing for like having a gut level understanding of taste about material. And if you just know that it's something that you know that everyone would like to see other than just yourself, like you kind of start with yourself but then you also think about other people. And if you can distill all of that into two or three sentences and say it and sell it, you're going to be able to get somebody interested in that material. And Sean? Yeah, I agree. Like, <clears throat> I can't sell anything that I don't love. Like, right. if they don't see that looking like, like I'm assuming like if you're having a face to face this would apply like if, if I don't have that fire in my eyes when I'm pitching it it doesn't work like I could never pitch anything that I don't believe in so I, yeah. I hey you have to you have to love it and believe in it right because there's it's so hard to take something from a napkin and turn it into something so I I would just say yeah you have to be able to explain it in a short amount of time with a lot of passion. You have to believe it. And, you know, I think you have to think it through uh, for maybe months before you want to have a conversation about it. And, you know, I mean, someone could say, well, what's, what's this hook? And it's like, okay, well, this is, this is Boogie Nights meets Blow with a side order of Grand Theft Auto, right? Like that's a, that's like a, a splash of, you know, what it is. But, like, there's plenty of people in my circles. If I said, yeah, it's Boogie Nights meets Blow, teen, teenage girl runs a, a cartel in the middle of the hair metal scene, nine out of ten of my friends will say, go on. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, you, 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 you want to have a short version of what you're passionate about, I think, to open the door. And, you know, with this show being the Marvelists, we're all about the Marvel comics and whatnot, Marvel movies. What would be the way to sell this series to a diehard Marvel zombie? That's interesting, to a diehard Marvel zombie. Um, uh, I I think kind of the danger level in it uh, you know, Janie is, on, in a weird way, is a superhero in the fact that she has to she she has to maneuver a very dangerous terrain, very uh, courageously. And quite frankly, <laughs> everybody that was uh, around in the eighties, you know, weren't they weren't they weren't always the smart sharpest tools in the shed, living in L.A. working in that scene. <laughs> So she has to manage a lot of people too, and she has to do it courageously. So that kind of puts her on the hero side of this whole story. I like that. And 
and I'll add, she's a person who had a challenge, had nothing, had to overcome it, uh, got uh, handed some power, uh, didn't like the power that she received because uh, she had a lot of power, uh, didn't want to abuse the power, and once she had it, didn't enjoy having the extra power, the special power that she had, and um, had a choice to go left or right and decided to choose good over bad. Um, And, you know, the planet, a.k.a. karma, uh, rooted for her. And I'd say a lot of bad guys got in trouble, and the good good egg of the bunch, uh, you know, Made it out alive. Very cool. Now, yeah. gentlemen, once again, Hot Valley Days and Cocaine Nights. It's a three-part series. Issue number three is going to be dropping when? March 3rd. March 3rd. And you can actually you can get it at local comic shops or on comicsology.com. And I believe like the first th- uh, two issues are 99 cents at the moment on Comixology. So it's, you know, a cup of coffee and... Right. Technically, right. Uh, digital cocaine, maybe? <laughs> question mark. I don't know. But <laughs> you get a, you could buy a pinch, <laughs> like three grains, three grains of coke for ninety nine cents. <laughs> and once again, you know, it, it's a wild ride. I'm still not finished with the story, but hot damn! <laughs> Just, <Yeah. laughs> I'm very excited to see how this story is going to end. And again, wishing you guys nothing but continued success. And also, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Um, um, my, my, uh, they can read. I, I talk and go back and forth with a lot of comic uh, book fans and comic creators and artists and everybody like that on my uh, Instagram, which is one, it's just one big word. It's Ginger Matt Stacy, and Stacy is S T A C E Y. I use my middle name because. My last name can be a little uh, a mouthful. So Ginger Matt Stacy, that's me on Instagram. And Sean? My Instagram is uh, Execution Style One. Okay, story time for that name. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've had a production company for almost 20 years called Execution Style. And uh, God, I can't remember what motivated me to that name I, I I think it was like a guy in a band I was talking to one time brought that up we were thinking of different names for stuff and uh, I don't know I think it was maybe I can't remember I can't remember how that name came up but uh, I grabbed it and it was there so I formed a corporation to run all my movies and anything I'm working on through and that name is just kind of it's kind of stuck and when I go to the bank sometimes and cash a check with the execution style on it, they look at me a little funny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had the name for about twenty years. It's just I don't know. It gets a, it always gets some some reaction out of someone. So that's that's the name. And yep. actually, before we go, Matthew, you have your starting comics as well. Bad kids go to hell. How can yeah. people check that out? And what is it about? So <laughs> that was the comic that launched. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it launched a lot of uh, people out uh, out there into the world, uh, actors and actresses and everybody. So that was, so you talk about an elevator pitch. Um, at the time, nobody 
had thought to do this, right? This is, this is we actually predate a couple of other uh, things that were coming out at about the same time we were, but our comic came first before anybody. And it was this. This was, this was our elevator, elevator pitch, was imagine Breakfast Club as a horror film. And it's the worst kids at the prep school are in detention during Saturday, and one by one they get killed off. And you're kind of rooting for it <laughs> until there's only one left. So it was Breakfast Club meets uh, And Then There Were None, <laughs> right? The Agatha Christie story, yeah. right? Six, six go in, one comes out, that sort of structure. And so that's what the comic book was. And it's one of those things. Nobody had done it. So we did it. And that thing flew off the shelves, uh, kind of the way that Todd Valley has been going. And it just, very quickly, we were able to get the money together to shoot a film for that. And that was the first thing, first feature that I had directed. Very cool. Yeah. Now, gentlemen, once again, thank you so much for your time. And Hot Valley Days and Cocaine Nights, issue number three, is dropping March 3rd from Antarctic Press. Nothing but success. Thank you again, gentlemen. I just want to say thanks, Peter. And uh, also, please tell Eddie hello when he gets back from Guam. Will do. <laughs> For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Shawnee DeMott. And I'm Matthew Spradlin. And remember, dear readers, Excelsior.